Alright, hello everyone, and welcome to the 411 Ground and Pound MMA podcast. We are your weekly look into the wide, wacky, wonderful world of mixed martial arts. My name is Robert Winfrey, and I am, as always, so very, very glad that you're here. Please take a minute, interact with the product any way that you can. Like, comment, subscribe if that's applicable. Star rating, written review. Anything and everything you can do to help the show in that respect is always appreciated. If you've done all that, share. Tell people you're listening to the show. Be that in person or on your social media platform of choice, that helps a great deal. All right. Uh, on the agenda this evening, last night, UFC 284, really good co- top couple of fights. Not so great for the rest of the card, but we'll go over all the results. And a preview, UFC on ESPN Plus 77, which had its main event changed the last minute, but we will go over that. And not a lot of news. You know, not a whole lot of news this week, so probably won't talk too much about that. I mean... I'm recording this after the Super Bowl here in the United States, so that kind of sucked up all the news oxygen over the last week or so. Uh, we'll double-check you know, the MMA world before we get out of here, but I don't anticipate a lengthy news section. So That's where we stand for the show. Let's jump right in, shall we? UFC 284 from Perth, Australia. Your main event, UFC lightweight champion Islam Makashev defending his title against Alexander Volkanovsky, the reigning featherweight champion and pound-for-pound best fighter in the sport, according to the UFC. This was a great fight. Let me start off with that. Um, A lot of great stuff from both guys, a lot of tactical stuff from both guys. Ultimately, Makashev wins a decision, unanimous, two 48-47s and then one 49-46. I don't agree with 49-46. I was 48-47. My scorecard was as follows. I gave Volkanovski rounds 2, 3, and 5. Just how I saw it. Uh, That said, the clearest rounds of this entire fight are rounds 4 and 5. 4 for Makashev, 5 for Volkanovski. There's a hipster argument for Volkanovski in the 4th. And I hate that the scoring criteria and rules are whack enough that we can make this argument. Not hating on anyone making it, by the way. I hate the fact that the rules are in a position where... Because the fourth round... Let me talk about that for just a second. Uh, Volkanovski gets a little bit over-eager fairly early. He thinks he has a read on Makashev, and he kind of does. But he gets a bit too anxious. Makashev ducks under, gets on his hips, gets a takedown... Volkanovski very quickly uh, looks to scramble, gives up his back scooting to the fence, and unfortunately for Volkanovski, Mikashev this time is able to get both of his hooks in. There was a lot of other fence wrestling where Mikashev could not establish a dominant position. And here he was. He finally got both hooks in, and he spent like three and a half minutes on Volkanovski's back. I and mean, we didn't d- land any damaging strikes. In fact, Volkanovski technically landed more strikes that round, but, and this is, again, I hate the way the rules talk about this, because when I say there's a hipster argument for Volkanovski in that round, it's based on a reading of the rules that, and I'm not saying it's even necessarily a wrong reading, that ignores the positional dominance in favor of ultimately strikes that didn't really have an effect on anything. And again, my dislike of the situation is not to the people saying 
Here's my case for Volkanovsky. It's to the rules and the fact that they allow that position to be made. That's not on the people making it. I didn't give that round to Volkanovsky. To me, there's a degree of... Like, you're fighting at such a deficit from that position that... You, no, it's almost impossible to win a round if you spend that much time with your back taken. My opinion. So, that was a very clear round from where I sit. The fifth round to Volkanovsky was also, like, the clearest round of the fight. Uh, but what happened from what from where I was sitting? After the decision was announced, Volkanovsky, you know, he got an interview. Mikashev got one first, then Volkanovsky. Volkanovsky said... You know, he thought Makashev underestimated his wrestling and grappling game, probably true, and then admitted, and I probably underestimated his striking game. I also think that's true. So that's kind of what happened here. I think both guys assumed they'd have a bigger advantage in their preferred field than they did, and it led to a really fascinating bit of counterplay here. Um, Volkanovsky wanted to push the pace fairly early. He He likes a little bit higher pace. Which is not to say crazy pace, but he likes to keep things active. He doesn't like to give people rest time. And that paid off for him here, by the way. Like, not only did he win the last round convincingly, he dropped Mikashev with a right hand, got on top, beat him up with ground and pound to close out the fight. Um, Mikashev was visibly a little bit worn down by the end of this. Now, I'm not saying that, oh, I'm not pointing the finger going, boy, his cardio's weak. It's not weak. These two fought a fairly grueling fight. This wasn't, you know, a barn burner from start to finish. But there was a lot of grappling. There was a lot of clinching, and both guys are strong. There was a lot of fighting in that space, and there wasn't a lot of rest time. That will wear you down. Even if you're in very good shape, and Makashev is in very good shape. I'm not, I'm not knocking the guy. I'm saying by the end of this fight, he looked like he was... You know, he looks like he was kind of done. Like, not again, not like having to be carried out of the cage or anything. We've seen guys be physically exhausted to that point. He wasn't that. But he was, you know, he was a little bit worn down. He was a little bit tired. It was his first time going five rounds in a, in a real fight. I'm sure he's prepped for five rounds. And that's a bit of a shock. You know, there's nothing quite like doing it for real. So he just, he looked a little like, okay... I'm I'm done with this. Like this was, you know, I'm tired. Want to be done. Volkanovski looked like he could fight for five more rounds. Like that guy's motor is nuts. But Volkanovski looked to you know, kind of push things, and that opened him up in ways we haven't really seen before. Now some of this is how he and Makashev squared up. Makashev is not a very aggressive fighter most of the time. He's happy to play defense, and look to counterattack. When, you know, when uh, Volkanovski was fighting Max Holloway or Brian Ortega or Chan Sung Jung, like, these are fighters who are coming at him. So his game shifts a little bit. If you want a better, another kind of example of what this sort of looked like, not with the same skill discrepancy, but if you watch um, Volkanovski's fight with Jose Aldo, he had to be a bit more proactive at times to try and, because Aldo was going to be defensively responsible, look to counter same kind of thing. Very different outcomes, very different implementation of games. But you know, Volkanovski couldn't quite 
absorb the pressure because Mikashev doesn't really wasn't really putting on the pressure in that same way. Volkanovski is excellent at absorbing and countering pressure, by the way. In fact, when uh, Mikashev didn't come forward a whole lot from most of the fight because he it didn't work for him all that well. He was better off either pot-shotting from outside or letting Volkanovski try to force things and then counter. That just worked better for him. And again, towards the end of the fight, both guys kind of made a couple of key reads on each other, but uh, let me get to that. So first round, it's going good for Volkanovski. He's the more active participant. He lands a pretty good left hand, actually. Um, Makashev fights southpaw. Volkanovski does a fair bit of stance switching, which did seem to give Makashev some problems uh, at open space. But Volkanovski was a little bit, a little bit over aggressive. Like there's times when he would just he wanted to get after this fight. And it cost him in places. Uh, Makashev was able to counter him with a pretty nice right hook from time to time. Again, that's Makashev's lead hand. And he caught Volkanovski coming in with some really nicely timed shots on occasion. And near the end of the first round, he kind of wobbles him. You know, drops him down to a knee, similar to some of the stuff Max landed on him in their second fight. And Volkanovski, who has an exceptional chin, bounces back up. But you know, the bigger stuff, was, the bigger damage was done by Makashev. Second round, very, very close. Again, I gave the second to Volkanovski, but very close round. More of the same, but again, you know, Volkanovski fighting well, fighting long, and just getting into these pocket exchanges where Makashev's happy enough to throw back at him. Uh, a lot of clinching. Makashev doesn't want to exchange in the pocket for too long, but he's not afraid to be there either. It's a strategic thing. It's not a fear thing. It's, it's just, I don't want to be in these 50-50 positions. It doesn't benefit me. Let me grab a clinch. Uh, Makashev has good knees from the clinch. He, in fact, he's very busy with them. What kind of got him in trouble a little bit here was actually his... Because um, he got back control a little in the first round, a lot more in this round. He just couldn't do much with it. But uh, Volkanovski had trouble breaking his grip. It's not surprising. Both men are very strong. So there was that. But he he stayed fairly busy. The problem is Volkanovski's clinch game is actually quite good. Uh, he was able to spin Makashev into the fence several times, landed some nice little short punches. Uh, Vol uh, Makashev just didn't have the kind of overwhelming fence wrestling advantage that I think he expected. Uh, third round, very similar to the second. You know, Volkanovski just, again, doing a little bit more in my eyes, but he would keep getting countered at some really bad moments. And Makashev has some decent power for the division. Uh, Makashev had some decent body kicks along the way here. He didn't kick, neither guy kicked a whole lot, which hurt a lot of Volkanovski's game. Um, he had some, he had a couple of nice calf kicks, one really nasty inside calf kick, actually. But he was, you know, not going to overcommit on the kicks. He would kick at the end of combination, which is a better way to do it if you're worried about being taken down. Kicking at the end of what you're doing uh, tends to be less dangerous in that respect. Fourth round, again, Makashev gets a nice takedown. Fifth round, uh, it's a little bit back, it's a little bit even until Volkanovski lands a nice right hand that, again, drops Makashev for a second. Makashev reaches for a single, winds up pulling guard, uh, which was smart on his part, for the record. Like He was in position to ultimately win the decision. 
and he mitigated the risk of actually getting finished. So a couple of things about this strategically. Um, again, Makashev's right hand was doing some pretty good work. He was very patient. He had a good read on the distance of Volkanovski for most of this fight. Anytime again, Volkanovski would get close, he would actually get again, just a little bit over-amped up. He'd kind of square up. And that's what let Makashev land some of his counters. Just less than ideal foot positioning and stance alignment. So, there was that. Um, but Volkanovski changed up his timing a bit in the fifth round. He was, And it was interesting. This was one of the times when we got his corner. And he was talking with both of his cornermen, one of whom is Eugene Behrman. And he said earlier, you know, he doesn't quite feel that strong in the clinch. Now, I'm Makashev is very strong. But I think what he was saying there was, you know, it's not overwhelming. I can deal with it. And he could. But in talking about, like, the timing of what he was doing in the fifth round, Volkanovsky switched up his timing a little bit. He would enter, you know, a little bit bent over. And he was getting caught before because he would... You know, jab, dipping jab in, right hand, and then kind of come up on a left hook. You know, again, this is a very classic combination. It's the only thing he was throwing, but bear with me. And the timing at which he was operating was getting him caught. So fifth round comes around, and he and his coaches talk it, a li- talk it out a little bit, and they come up, what they tell him, and what he kind of talks with them a little bit about is, wait, enter, wait a beat, then go instead of firing it all at the same time. Because if you come in and it's jab, right, hook, it's that timing gets predictable, and that's where you get hurt on counters. Instead, he started going like jab, right, beat, hook. And that was doing better work for him. Uh, that's kind of what led to him catching Makashev. He came in a little bit low, Makashev changed levels with him, and he just dropped a right hand on him. Um, unfortunate for Volkanovski didn't go his way. I think three to two for either man is a perfectly defensible scorecard. I loved this fight, man. This is one of my uh, this is one of my front runners for fight of the year right now. Good drama, incredible technique, great pace from both guys. This was among the very. This wasn't the most like rock'em sock'em, wild fights you'll ever see, but high level MMA. This is very much one of the better fights you'll find. Uh, these two guys bounced off of each other in very interesting ways. They interacted very, very interestingly in their strategic decision-making. Uh, really good fight. I actually would not hate a rematch. Not right away. That's unfair to both divisions. But if... Who would be next for Makashev in all probability? What do we think? Probably the winner of uh, Oliveira and Daryush. Especially if Daryush wins. The promotion might be hesitant for Oliveira. I mean, uh, Makashev, after the fight, said, at the post-fight presser, said, you know, I have no problem fighting Oliveira again if he beats Benil Dariush. Though, again, the UFC might not want to do that, uh, depending on some other options that may or may not present themselves. If Dariush beats Oliveira, it would be almost criminal to deny him at that point. This fight made me want to see Makashev and Dariush, actually. A lot. Um, both men are southpaws, which I think might trouble Makashev a little bit. He fights southpaw because it's a lot, it's defensively safer against an orthodox fighter. And 
again that that same defensive uh, advantages those same ones are not quite there when you're closed stance instead of open stance uh, Daryush can deal with takedowns. He's a very good grappler. Can he deal with Makashevs in particular? That remains to be seen. But Daryush is also just a freaking hammer, man. Like, that guy will go out there and get after it. He's mean. He fires powerful kicks. Not afraid to brawl. I'm very interested in that fight. Now, again, this is pursuant to him beating Oliveira and a couple of other lightweight players and what might happen with them. That, of course, is all very true. And it's not like Volkanovski's next fight at Featherweight is some walk in the park either. We'll get to that in a minute here. But uh, if both guys win their next fight, I wouldn't hate a rematch. In fact, I might pick Volkanovski for a rematch. He seemed to figure some stuff out towards the end. Whether that's, you know, timing-related issues or, you know, uh, Makashev wearing down a little bit, which I think he did. Again, we're talking, look, Makashev in the fifth round will beat a lot of guys in the fifth round because he was he was prepared. He just was against, you know, a guy with a better motor. And that can be a problem. So there's a, I just I would like a rematch. Right? I, I don't know that it'll happen. But I wouldn't hate it. I'm just going to put it like that. I wouldn't hate it. This was a really good fight. I very much enjoyed this thing. This was your fight of the night, for the record. Million times over again. This is... It's February. It's on my list of potential fights of the year. So, great stuff from both guys. Uh, heck of a fight. Heck of a fight. Uh, your co-main event. For the interim featherweight title. I was wrong on this one, and let me be clear about this. Um, the closer we got to this fight, the more I realized I was going to be wrong. Not necessarily in the way that it played out here, but l let me just... I picked, because I think I picked Josh Emmett last week. He did not win. Yair Rodriguez taps him out with a triangle choke in the second round. Here's what occurred to me the closer we got to this fight. I give Josh Emmett credit for being an insanely tough human being, because he is. But he, when I say he doesn't wear damage well, I don't mean that he can't fight through it. He does a lot. I mean, like, some guys just don't get beat up, physic like, visibly. You know, for a long time, BJ Penn had a face like rubber. Like, you couldn't, you couldn't cut him. You know, you, you struggled to bruise the guy. Like, didn't seem to matter what you did to him. Conversely, you have guys who mark up easily. Some of them are very good fighters, like GSP and Fedor Emelianenko, both. Like, you could mark those guys up pretty easily. I mean, Frankie Edgar, for crying out loud, you look at that guy hard enough and his nose will start bleeding. He'll still beat the crap out of you, most of, the, especially in his heyday, but that's always been a thing. Like, you can mark him up. He's just good about persevering. But guys who get lumped up like that, like, that's a problem. And when, So when I say he doesn't wear damage well... That's what I mean. I don't mean that he can't deal with it. I mean, it's a problem tactically for him. You know, Cater busted him up. I thought Cater won that fight, for the record, in case you forget. But, like, even you know, fights he's won, if you look at him afterwards, like, 
That is not how you want to look. And he got through it because he's tough and he's a very good fighter. But that's a pro again, that's a problem, man. Some guys just get beat up. And they just cut, they cut easy. They swell up easy. You know, the, those things exist. That's true of Emmett. And Yair Rodriguez now, like, he puts the damage on you. That's a real thing. Like, the closer we got to this, the more I kind of went, you know, Emmett White might win a round. Might even win two. But, like, eventually the accumulated damage that Rodriguez is going to put on him is going to stop this. Like, his eyes are going to swell shut. He's going to get some giant cut. Like, that, that was my thought. It was just like, time we... Emmett's a good enough fighter to, skill for skill, compete with Yair Rodriguez for five rounds. But you factor in the damage he's going to take, and suddenly I don't think I don't think he, this goes the distance. Now, I still would have been wrong in some respects, but that, that was kind of my read on things. We get to the fight, and this was not... I gave... I gave Emmett the first, but barely. And let me talk through this. Yara Rodriguez is a fairly big featherweight. He's long, and he is a mean fighter. And I, I say that as a compliment. Look, I spent a lot of Yair's time in the UFC um, not liking the guy. Because, and bear with me here, if you watched his early UFC runs, like, like some of those early fights, he gets a couple of decisions that he maybe shouldn't have. Uh, the Charles Rosa fight sticks out in my head. And you watch his fights, and it's a lot of stupid spinning stuff for no reason other than he can do it. I mean, his fight with uh, Alex Caceres, it's a joke, almost. Like, how do I say this without, like, demeaning them? Because I'm not trying to demean it. There's big stretches of that fight that look like certain styles of professional wrestling fights in some respects. Not fixed, but like, hey, spinny, and just stuff that like, you just throw your hands up and go, why? And he did that for a long time. And he got away with it, and he kind of got by on doing enough in the first couple of rounds to win three-round fights. And the last few fights of his, win or lose, and he does have a loss to Max Holloway, what he has done is finally sorted himself out. He's not throwing the stupid stuff anymore. That doesn't mean he's not athletic. doesn't mean he's not dynamic. It means he's more selective. He fights very well at range, and again, he is a mean fighter. Everything he throws is mean. And he's pretty fast, and he's good about hitting you in places you don't expect. One of the things he threw a lot here, like, he hurt Emmett early with a body kick. He was southpaw to Emmett's orthodox. And constantly what he would do is kind of the inverse of the southpaw double. He'd throw the power leg, and then before that leg even goes back into his stance, here's... So there's not a lot of power behind it, but throw the left leg to the body as it lands and is starting to retract, 
right hand to the head. And, again, there's not a lot on that punch, but you're not expecting it. And sometimes that's more important than being able to really root yourself and drive through your power. Uh, he's great about landing elbows in close. Like, his, his game is designed to hurt you. And that might seem self-evident for fighting, but it's not as... It's not, a, again, it's not as self-evident and not as universally true as you might think. Um, the tide shifts towards the end of the round when Emmett drops him with a couple of punches. Emmett gets on top, and Rodriguez is not great about regaining his feet. This is something that can still be exploited in his game, I think. But he's active off of his back, and he lands... He's got a little, a sneaky little, like, adaptation to elbows off your back as far as the technique goes that really make them effective. Now, my opinion, the best elbow you can throw off of your back is, um, it's kind of the, like, misdirected one. I, that's not the right word. Um, what you do is you, like, push your opponent's head and face away with, say, your right hand. And what happens when you start pushing up? They're, they push down, right? Like, they're, they're resisting that force. Then you relax that, that right hand and turn it into an elbow, and their whole body weight kind of comes crashing down into it. So you, you can push and then elbow. That seems to me like the most generally effective one off of your back. And it's easier to cut people with that. I mean, that's what Bisbing cut up George St. Pierre with. Um... If you watch some of the earlier Brian Ortega fights, that's the elbow he was using. I mean, he tore, um, who was it? Tiago Tavares, I believe. Uh, he cut him to ribbons off of his back with that elbow over and over again. But that's a little bit harder, and it kind of relies on some slightly different body positioning. The one everyone throws is kind of the tomahawk elbow, Uh which is, you know, if you would be doing like a 12 to 6 up and down you know, with gravity instead... Lay on your back and then throw that same elbow towards your, your opponent's head. It's not that big a deal most of the time because most people don't... How do I say this? Like, for most people, it's just kind of a lat pull-down. Like, you get a little bit of your shoulder there, but if all you do is, like, keep everything else still and you just are going you know, from behind your head, kind of down with your elbow, like... The only muscle really working there is your lat and a little bit of your shoulder. And your lats are big muscles, but you're just kind of arming it, right? And even then, like that, getting your lat involved kind of depends on a little bit of an arc. For a lot of guys, it's just kind of like the shoulder, maybe a little bit of the triceps. And it's just, it's not very effective. Like you might cut some people with that elbow, but you can't get much into it because you're on your back and most people aren't good about using your leverage from that point. Yair's adaptation for this is he keeps his guard somewhat tight. So he's got his legs kind of squeezing together and he arches his back. So he's like, how would you do that? He's like contracting his glutes. So he arches his back. He reaches way back with that arm that's elbowing. And as that elbow comes down, he pulls in like he's doing a, cr a stomach crunch. 
Like, watch his body as he's doing this. It's not just arm motion. It's arch up and then bring every bit of muscular advantage he can crashing down with that elbow to help it out. It's a very physically demanding way to throw that elbow. It's a lot, again, that will engage more of your body. It's much more taxing. But you can get a lot more force behind it than if all you do is just the arm. And pay attention to that if you want to get some oomph behind that elbow off your back. I mean, you know, warn your training partner if you want to do something like that. But might be, if, you, if you don't believe me about the differences in power, get someone to, even if they have to like hold, um, you wouldn't even use like, you use like a kick pad instead of a focus pad. Right? And let them be, you know, in your guard and then throw the straight elbow and then start getting your whole body into it. And you'll feel the difference. It does, it kind of limits your ability to fight back to your feet because you're using your whole body for this, but it's more damaging and might therefore force more motion. Um, Emmett dealt with it, you know, landed some good ground and pound. Again, he kind of edged out that round, I thought. I, I don't hate if you give it to Rodriguez at all. But you know, I went Emmett for whatever that's worth. Second round, more of the same, man. Yair at distance. He is a... That dude is ferocious. Like, again, just everything. He's trying to kill you. And he puts damage on people. He hurt Emmett with, again, some more body work. Um, he throws a flying knee that Emmett, that lands. Emmett gets a takedown, but Emmett's still rocked. Probably can't breathe all that well. Rodriguez throws some more of those elbows. He's kind of stuffed against the fence, but if you want to stuff him against the fence and limit what he's doing, you can't just, like, get him so his head's a little bent. You actually have to stack him up, right? You have to get his hips off the ground and really kind of compress everything. That's where the real problems start, and Emmett couldn't quite do that. So, between the elbows that Rodriguez was landing, and then he tries a triangle, switches to an arm bar, as Emmett defends that, he goes back to the triangle, gets it, um, gets the tap, just the third triangle choke uh, title win in UFC history, actually. The other, um, Ferguson hit one on Kevin Lee, and then uh, Khabib's on Gagey. Not, not something you see very much at the highest level. Um, heck of a win for Rodriguez. Easily the best performance of his career. And I still, like, I'm still going to pick Volkanovski when they fight. Because I, because I am. But I'm going to say for the record, like, Rodriguez is a very dangerous opponent. He's a long guy. And again, man, that, that violence inherent in what he does, that's a big deal. It's a real big deal. So, I give him all the credit in the world. He finally seems to have sorted himself out. I mean, he might have lost that fight with Max Holloway. Lost it fairly. Like, I scored that for Max. But look at Max after that fight. And I don't just mean his career after that fight. I mean, look at what happened to him. Like, those two lumped each other up. Max went through the blender against that guy. Like, you fight Yair Rodriguez, you, you're fighting a wood chipper, man. You're going to go through it. Even if you beat him. Like, his last loss was, what, to Frankie Edgar? And Edgar, you know, got it. That was Edgar when he was still very good. 
got a takedown, got him against the fence, and just kind of pounded him out, like, swole up his eyes so bad the fight had to be stopped. Like, that's not all that useful a fight to study anymore, even. Apart from elements of his, like, philosophy about fighting on the ground, because Rodriguez, again, he's not... If he doesn't think he can get up in a, an explosive manner, he will just play guard, and that's dangerous. At the same time, like, again, he's making it work for him, so... You know, yeah. But apart from that, like elements of what made fr what helped Frankie win that fight, some of the wildness is not there anymore. It's been toned down and refined considerably. His guard game these days is not just closed guard, throw up kicks, hope they fall into a triangle. That's kind of what he was doing back then, and Frankie punished him for it. He's not that guy anymore. He might still prefer to play guard in a general sense rather than, you know, give up his back or, again, just as a personal strategy. But he's doing it in very different ways. So, yeah, he's going to be a handful. He and Volkanovski, I think, is going to make for a heck of a fight. That's going to be a heck of a fight. And, like I said, I'm picking Volkanovski, but discount Yair Rodriguez at your peril. Because... That's dangerous, man. Um, oh, sorry, I, me I forgot to mention this about the main event. But if you want to understand some of just how good these two guys are and how they meshed here, um, these two did horrible things to each other's stat lines. Uh, Makashev came into this fight averaging, absorbing, I think, like 0.8 strikes, significant strikes per minute. It was 0.8 or 0.9, somewhere like less than one a minute. Which is absurdly low. Like, his defense is great. Volkanovski made him absorb, by the time it was over, I think it was like 2, almost 3. Like 2.8, I think. So, Volkanovski was so good versus him, he added, like, two standard deviations, right, to what he was taking. Flip side of that, Volkanovski came into this fight... Averaging a landing rate of six point something significant strikes per minute, which is very high, and he could only get two point again eight or so, I believe it was eight against Makashev. Think about that for just a second. Like Makashev's defense is so good, he radic he cut Volkanovski's offensive efficacy about in half. And on the flip side, Volkanovski's so good that he, and this fight was so you know evenly fought in some respects, that he took one of the best defensive fighters in the sport, statistically speaking, and was more effective at, what was the stat line? So here was the other, here was the crazy thing, another crazy stat. In Makashev's entire UFC run prior to this fight, entire run, he'd absorbed, I think it was... A hundred some odd strikes. Now, again, we're talking 13 fights coming into this, I want to say. 13 total fights. Against some very some you know, quality fighters and just absorbed almost nothing. Uh, Volkanovski landed like 70 on him in this one fight. So... These two guys matched, those two guys matched up in some beautiful ways. Uh, like I said, I love a rematch, but both guys have future dates to worry about before we potentially revisit this one. Um, I don't know what's next for Emmett. He is, 
this was probably his last shot. Like, he's a, he's almost 40. I want to say he's 38, give or take. Um, and he's still good, but his style is just not going to allow him to reliably fight the best guys in the world. I just, I don't think it does. Uh, and, you know, Yair and Volk, looking forward to that one. It's going to be a good fight. Uh, next up, featured bout, Jack Della Maddalena, still probably working on that 12 and 12 contender series contract, fights Randy Brown and runs him over. I mean, rear naked choke, what, 213 of the first? Yeah, sorry, the official time on Rodriguez and Emmett was 419 of the second. Yeah, JDM here, Brown tries to stay long early, moves a lot, and JDM, I'm just going to call him that, you know, moves well, cuts him off a little bit, fires enough leg kicks to slow him down just a hair, good straight punches, gets him along the fence, tags him with a right hand, tags him with another right hand, kind of gets him down, jumps on him, gets his back, chokes him out. Um, I don't have a whole lot to say here. Like, uh, Jack Della Maddalena, who was, I think, maybe my breakout fighter for 2022. He fought three times in the UFC, three first-round finishes, the last two getting in performance bonuses. Here, again, takes another step up in competition. He's fought in the UFC. Pete Rodriguez stopped him in under three minutes. Ramazan Amiv. Uh, is Amiv still in the UFC? Yeah, he hasn't fought since the JDM fight, but Amiv, a, you know, respectable UFC-level fighter. He's been cut since this, and yeah. Uh, and JDM runs him over less than three minutes, first-round stoppage. Danny Roberts, never the best guy in the division, but, you know, again, been around for a while, fought some good guys, has some good wins, uh, and JDM runs him over in the first round in 3 minutes and 24 seconds. Here, Randy Brown, again, another step up in competition. Brown was on, like, a four-fight winning streak. You know, Brown's been in the UFC for a while, since 2016. He's, again, he's got decent wins. He's got wins over Brian Barbarena, Warley Alves, Alex Oliveira, Francisco Trinaldo. Like, those guys aren't chumps. And... When was the... Uh, Vicente Luque stopped him. But this was... Yeah, this is the... He's never been stopped in the first before. Like... Four fights in the UFC, and no one's gotten out of the first round with JDM. He makes good decisions. He moves incredibly well. He is a very... He might have the best boxing, and I mean boxing in the UFC. Like, his punches are straight. You don't you don't realize how many people just loop their punches in MMA until you see a real straight puncher. Watch him punch. It is straight as an arrow. He is always on balance. He's good about finding openings. He's good about working the body. Like He wants to fight someone in the top 15 next. And he would like to fight, I think he said, in the United States, kind of around May. Um, I'm down for that, man. Like, give him... 
You've got... Who would make sense for him? I'd like to see him fight... Uh, dude, Vicente Luque would be... He and Luque would be a barn burner. Let me take a quick look at the rankings here for... Now, I don't think anyone in the top 10 is going to fight this guy yet. I think they're going to avoid him, and... Maybe for understandable reasons. Um... So, the current rankings, you have Edwards as champion, then Usman, Covington, Shemaev, Muhammad, Burns, Thompson. None of those guys are going to fight him. Uh, Jeff Neal, Sean Brady. Brady fell out of his fight. Uh, some kind of an injury. Vicente Luque at nine. I'd like that. I don't want to put him and Shavkat Rachmanov together. I think you'd kill off a rising contender too soon. Then, 11 is Masvidal, Michael Chiesa, Neil Magny, Michelle Pereira, and Lijing Leong. It was Pereira. Um, Brady's supposed to fight uh, Michelle Pereira. I don't think uh, JDM will take a quick turnaround fight to fight Michelle Pereira, but that's a thought, if nothing else. Um, I'd like him against any... I mean, he's not going to fight Jorge Masvidal. We know Masvidal and Burns are fighting. Um, does Kiesa have a fight? He might... Like, he would do awful things to Neil Magny. Uh, yet, like, in Lijing Leong at 15. But he's due a ranked opponent, like... And he's due a better UFC contract, by the way. <laughs> and he's only... What, is he, like, 27, 28? 26! Oh, God. He's 26 years old, and he's this good. <sighs> that guy, JDM is going to ruin a lot of welterweight dreams. There's a lot of guys who are going to have big dreams about their future in this sport, in this division, and he is going to ruin them. Watch out for that guy. People are going to... Ain't nobody going to be calling up Sean Shelby or Mick Maynard saying, I want to fight this guy. Nobody. I mean, he hasn't lost... Like, he lost his first two fights, I think. And he's undefeated since. Whew. Whoever he fights next, you know, God bless you, man. You got your hands full with that guy. Uh, heavyweights next. Justin Taffa defeated Parker Porter via knockout punch, 106 of the first. Porter just shifted forward, kind of throwing punches, and got a bit out over his skis. Leaned too far forward, throwing the punch. Taffa fades back, Taffa fighting southpaw. Throws a really nice left hand inside the looping right hand of Porter. Cracks him on the jaw, and we're done. Uh, nice enough win for him. At light heavyweight, Jimmy Crude and Alonzo Menafield fought to a majority draw. There was a 29-27, not sure for who, and then two 28-28s. Um, Menafield was deducted a point in the third round for grabbing the fence to stop a takedown. I think the point deduction was justified. I scored it a draw. Both men seemed down for a rematch. Good. I I don't hate it. Um, Menafield was able to bomb on Kroot, but Kroot was tough. He hung on through some bad positions for some wrestling. Uh, yeah, again, like I was two, I was two to one for Menafield, but that point deduction screwed him. Don't grab the fence. 
So if they do a rematch, I'd be down. I'd, I picked Menafield for this. I'd probably pick him again. So that was your main card. Again, the top three fights are good. After that, we're... Yeah. As for the prelims, Modestus Bukowskis defeated Tyson Pedro via unanimous decision. 2 28 from 30-27. Not a lot to say here. Pedro just seemed to gas out after a wrestling exchange in the first round. And Bukowskis just stayed busier, said a little bit more effective. Meh. Featherweight. <laughs> One of those I told you so moments here, guys. Uh, Josh Kulabau defeats Meldrick... Uh, excuse me, Melsic, Bagdasarian via rear naked choke 202 of the second. <sighs> You'll recall, I said last week about the third UFC fight for guys who come out of Edmund Shabazian's Glendale Fighting Club, that's when the wheels fall off. Lo and behold, now, in fairness to Bagdasarian, he was not fighting badly here. I uh, want to give him his credit there. He won the first round. Uh, he's got a pretty good southpaw double attack. He's got a good kicking game. But... <sighs> Kulabau not only hung tough, but off-balanced him, caught him with a nice jab as he was throwing a kick, dropped him, jumped on his back real fast, choke almost immediately. Didn't quite seem prepared to address the position he found himself in, because Kulabau's a bit too high when he first jumps on the back. He goes for the choke right away, which was the right decision. Uh, again, you teach position before submission for a reason. But you have to know when to break some of those rules. And here's jumping on the neck was the right call. That said, someone more prepared for that might have been able to escape it. But such is not the world we find ourselves in. Uh, has to tap out. Um, Bagdasarian fighting dirty in this fight. He caught um, Kulabau with a spinning back kick to the groin. Real bad one. Like That was a real bad one. Um, then in the second round, they clinch up and he throws a headbutt. It looked like a deliberate headbutt to me, and the ref didn't say anything. So I'm all for dirty fighters getting their comeuppance. Here's... Here's the thing about guys... I've said this before about guys who come out of the Glendale Fighting Club, but let me let me restate it here for the record. Um, Edmund Shabazian tends to attract guys who have decent natural fighting instincts and some physical gifts. And that will carry them to a certain level. You know, Edmund Shabazian's success was not accidental. He had a really good run through his beginning of the UFC. Ronda Rousey's success was not accidental. Melsic Bagdasarian's success to this point is not an accident. Like he's not fluking he was not fluking his way to success. But here's the problem. I let me let me bring out a metaphor here if you'll all indulge me. When you're a fighter, there's a lot of it's easy enough to say, you know, you have your coaches, and yeah, and that's true, but let me just, for the record, let's, there's, enough, there's a lot of metaphors we could use here. Let me use film, because I think we can all understand this. If you're the fighter, you're kind of the finished product of your coach's vision, right? Coach being the equivalent of the director here. Now, who's around you? 
you have a director of photography, you have a cinematographer, you have a lighting expert, you have second unit guys, you have production assistant, you have the people in charge of production. Like, you have a million people around you contributing to make the vision come to reality, but it all is focused through the eyes of the director and the director's vision. If you, you will know these movies if you've seen them. I'm not going to list names, but let me just specifically let me say you have probably seen movies in your time that were the first effort of somewhat talented again director of photography uh getting getting a shot at a feature length film at being the director and they don't work because the you need more skills than just what you get being a director of photography. Now, that's not knocking DOPs, or even saying that you can't go from being a DOP to being a very, very talented director. Of course you can. Of course you can. But anyone who's been in that position will tell you the skills are different. It, you might have a good eye, but do you have the creative, do you have the cohesive creative vision? Can you adjust what's going on? Can you, you? There's a lot there. Can you get what you need out of the actors? Can you manage a, a shooting schedule? For, like Again, a lot of stuff goes into it. In the case of Edmund Shabazian, I'm going to be fair to the man here. There's elements of what he promotes in his school that are not the worst. That might seem like I'm being very backhanded with my compliment, but hear me out. He doesn't give the most technical advice. But there's a degree of his technique, which is okay, a degree, usually the offensive stuff. And he promotes a an aggressive style, a, a pursuit of the fight, that is laudable. And a lot of people could even benefit from a bit more of that in their style. However, a lot of these guys that he trains, this is what he brings. Like, you have a degree of technical proficiency at some of the fundamentals, usually the offensive stuff. Your defense isn't great, but your firepower and your pursuit of the fight will carry you to a level. The problem is, you get to a certain point and everyone has seen enough of you to realize, okay, let's try X. X looks like it might work. And then... If X works, and usually it does, if you're the coach, it is your job to address the weakness. It is your job to fix that problem. If you're the director, and not just the director of photography, it is your job to fix the creative problem, to fix the structural problem, to, fi to find the right narrative beat. It is not your job to simply put something pretty in front of the lens. If you're a head coach, you have to fix the problem. If you are not equipped to be a head coach, all you do is what you've always done. And this is where this is what Edmund Shabazian falls into. He will get you he will keep doing what he's always done with you. And the problem is that's not going to address the flaws that have been exposed. That's not going to address Again, let's take Edmund Shabazian for a minute here. Did he... Once he got wrestled to death by Derek Brunson, 
did it ever look like he had meaningfully worked on not just his not just takedown defense that's way too simplistic a look at this it's footwork relative to wrestlers it's down blocking it's clinch breaking it's getting up from underneath which is a huge problem for him did it look like he'd fixed any of that and this is not a mystery you saw Derek Brunson do this to him did you work on it no and I can say no because his next three fights looked the same you didn't fix the problem Melsic Bogdasarian here, now, he did not get taken down and exposed the same way that Shabazian did. But look at what was exposed here. One, he's a little bit dirty. Two, his kicks, while powerful, are vulnerable to counters and in ways that maybe people hadn't quite realized. His time, he's fast, but his timing is not great. And if you can time him, you will hurt him. And then on the ground, well, he gave up position desperately trying to scramble back to his feet quickly. That will get you in trouble against a lot of guys a lot better than Josh Kulabau. And that's not a knock on Kulabau. Kulabau not known for his grappling. If he's able to do this, what's someone who's really good in that area going to do? So... My hunch, the next fight for Melsic Bogdasarian goes even worse than this one. And I hate to say this, but unless he changes teams. He is not going to get the adjustments and the refinement that he needs from Edmund Shabazian. Because no one who has ever come through his camp has ever gotten that from him. Ever. That's just reality as I see it. And that's harsh, and that sounds like I'm being very mean to Edmund. I'm not trying to be. He wouldn't be my first choice for a pure striking coach, but again, there's stuff he does that I think has value. And I'm not saying that just to like try and play nice. I'm saying that because I think it's true. As a head coach, as the architect, as the guy who has to take a bunch of different fighters and fine-tune and refine their skill sets relative to the opponent that they're going to be facing, he has not, to this point, demonstrated an ability to do that. And you can get mad at me all you want. You point me, give me one example. Give me one example of him refining and fixing a documented issue with one of his fighters. Give me one. Because I can't think of one. And I have seen pretty much every fighter he's had in the UFC. In fact, I probably have seen all of them. I just can't remember every individual one. So that's where we land on that. Say... If he gets other guys to the UFC, people, I, I don't give out betting tips. But if you're inclined to gamble, that third or fourth time they come out to the cage, that's usually about when the problems start. Those first few fights tend to go well for them. Three and four, that's where the problems start. Uh, assuming they face a reasonable escalation of talent. So, yeah.
Uh, catch weight of 127 pounds because Clayton Rodriguez missed weight. But he ran over Shannon Ross, 59-second TKO. Landed a really nasty body kick. Both guys were starting out orthodox. Um, Ross threw his own power leg kick, but he landed forward into southpaw. And that opened up the power, the power leg of Rodriguez to be into the open torso instead of more towards the back in the open stance conundrum there. And he got crushed with this body kick. Um, punches to follow up. Uh, Rodriguez needed the win to kind of smooth over the weight miss because that, that ain't great. But he came, again, then he came out and he got that done fast. So have to see how Rodriguez does next time. Uh, lightweight, Jamie Malarkey defeated Francisco Prado via unanimous decision, 30-27 across the boards. Um, Malarkey, just kind of the more fundamental technical fighter everywhere. Um, wasn't a bad fight, but nothing great. Early prelims, here's one for you. Jack Jenkins defeated Don Shane's via unanimous decision, 230-27s, 129-28. Jack Jenkins brings the violence. Um, and again, this is one of those things that You'd think everyone does because we're fighting here, but there's guys who just have the extra oomph, right? They have that extra little bit that's just violence, and you know it when you see it. Jenkins brings the hurt. Um, UFC debut, I'm not hyping the guy's future champion, but he looked good here. Someone maybe to pay attention to. Curious to see what he does next. Uh, strawweight, Loma Lukbunmi defeated Elise Reed via rear naked choke, 44 seconds of the second round. Some nice leg kicks from Lukbunmi in the first, but she got taken down and kind of dominated on the ground by Reed's second round. Uh, she hits a nice foot sweep, gets the back pretty quick. Not the ideal choking position, but she makes it work for her. Uh, solid enough win for her. Featherweight, uh, Blake Builder defeated Shane Young via unanimous decision, 230-27s on 29-28. Uh, nothing great here. A lot of good movement from Builder, but struggled to really generate much off of it. Just Young didn't have much. Uh, then third round, like the third round was kind of the deciding one for me. I was 29-28 for Builder. Uh, he gets a nice takedown early and kind of makes that work for him for the rest of the round. Uh, and a catchweight to kick things off. This decision sucked. Uh, Elvis Brenner, who missed weight, I'm sorry, Tuhugov missed weight. Uh, so this was supposed to be at lightweight. Tuhugov weighed 157 and a half. Uh, Brenner wins a split decision, a 29-28 each way. I don't love 29-28 Brenner. Um, he the first round legitimately close. I was 30-27 Tuhugov for the record. That said, round one legitimately close. Don't hate it going to Brenner. I disagree, but I don't hate it. And maybe, 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 if I squint really hard and have been hit in the head, I can give him the third. 30-27 for Brenner, which is one of the scores, is utterly indefensible. Um, who was the judge on this? There was Evan something or other. I want, want to make sure I get this right. Yeah, Evan Field... 30-27 for Brenner is, again, it's utterly, utterly indefensible. Um, fire that man. Like, Tuhugov kind of got screwed here. Like, I don't have a lot of sympathy for people who miss weight as often as he has. 
Uh, but still, man, he deserved to win this fight. He just did. Uh, that sucked. Uh, last thing from the broadcast, because it is kind of time to announce our new Hall of Fame inductees. The UFC announced the, late, the, the newest inductee into the 2023 class. In the Pioneer Wing, the first ever UFC lightweight champion Jens Pulver is going in. Overdue. Um, Jens Pulver is... He's the first lightweight champion, so 155. If you look at his frame, he actually ended his career fighting at, like, flyweight. Somewhere between bantamweight and featherweight might be more ideal, but the fact that he did as well as he did at 155 being smaller for the division... Uh... It's a heck of a thing, man. Like, he was part of a big fight for the WEC when they were, like, trying to... They The WEC, for a while, had generated a lot of, like, underground, like, real hardcore hype. Pulver coming from the UFC to the WEC to fight their poster boy, essentially, Uriah Faber, and then giving him a darn good fight, by the way. Uh, that was a big deal for that promotion. Um... So I'm glad Pulver's going in. Much deserved. Not a bad thing to say about that guy. Um, you can see his reaction to this. He was actually hosting the uh, the YouTube or Twitch watch party for UFC 284. And he's watching as they announce this. And you can see his reaction. Like, the man just breaks down. Um, he's he's had some rough relations with the UFC from time to time over his career. Um it's genuinely heartwarming to to see that on occasion from the UFC. And what I'm about to say should not be taken contrary to that, but as a minor aside, and I'm not saying they weren't planning this for a while anyway, because these things tend to come tend to be thought out. However, I think we'd be a little bit naive to ignore the following reality, shall we? Last week, Fedor Emelianenko retires from MMA. And Bellator does a pretty good job of celebrating not just Fedor, but the entire era of MMA that he represents. In fact, there's a wonderful picture, wonderful few pictures that came out of that event. But there's one of Fedor with a bunch of other guys from, again, around that same time. Um... Randy Couture, Dan Henderson, uh, Mark Coleman, Chael Sonnen, uh, I forget exactly, a bunch of guys are there. A bunch of, uh, Josh Barnett, actually, like, there's a bunch of that older guard. And Bellator got some decent press out of that, and I think we'd be foolish to ignore the possibility of the UFC going, okay, who from the past are we still on speaking terms with? And I'm not saying Jens doesn't deserve it. Like I said, it's overdue for that guy. Overdue, and I mean that. And he might have always been the choice for this year. But, again, I wonder how long ago he was asked to host this watch party. If maybe there wasn't some thought about you know, doing it later and just responding to another promotion having a bunch of guys of legends from that era including a bunch from the UFC prominently displayed might not have influenced some of the timing 
Not the decision itself, but the timing in general. Like, I'm, I'm curious about that. That said, like, this meant the world to Pulver, and you can see it all over his face, and I am over the moon for the guy. Like, again, I don't have a bad thing to say about him. So, well-deserved. Again, happy for him. But not going to... I'm not going to ignore the fact that the UFC does kind of suck at maintaining good relations with its past talent. Or that they're not that great about preserving their own history. The UFC just isn't. It, it just kind of needs to be said. Like, they're not great about it. If you're on the outs with the UFC, then they pretend you don't exist. Or they downplay you at every given opportunity. And that... Part of what makes other combat sports great in ways that MMA is not at the moment is the historical aspect, the generational fandoms, the appreciation and reverence for past fighters. You know, I heard this point made not that long ago, and I think it I think there's some truth to it. Boxing is one of the few sports where Past fighters, if you could transport them to the current era, would be maybe just as good, if not better, than current fighters. This is not true of most sports. Take a basketball team from the 70s. Put them in the contemporary NBA, and they don't do as well. This is very true of football. Take any, take whatever great team you think existed, you know, 30 years ago, 40 years ago in the NFL. Drop them into the upcoming season and they will not do well. There's a physicality difference. Sometimes it's a rules difference. There's, but the strategy and the techniques, like, you just, they won't do as well. You know, look what happened. You can do this with some, you know, pick your Olympic sport as a general rule. Like, look at the records. Look at the times. Look at the all that stuff. It ain't even close. Not even close. Boxing's different. Why do all of the contemporary greats... A lot? Ask anyone who the best fighter in boxing... Like, who's the greatest in boxing? Very few boxers will say anyone from the current era. Very, very few. Because boxers know what's up about this. They'll say, you know, Sugar Ray Robinson. Who was a remarkable fighter. They'll say... Unless you're dealing with different rules eras... You know, you could take someone like a Jersey Joe Walcott... And you could drop him into the current heavyweight division... And he'd do very well. Like, you'd have to tweet... Because contemporary training methodologies, they don't really differ all that much. Again, there are some differences, but there's not it's not as much as you think. And what they brought to the table fight-wise would still work at a very high level. You know, you might have some weight class shifts for a few of these people. Like, Ezra Charles would not be a heavyweight. Walcott, maybe. Well, got probably more of a cruiserweight by contemporary standards. Um, or to the extent you want to acknowledge Bridgerweight, I suppose. 
I, I mean, someone like Rocky Marciano would not fight in the heavyweight division. But look at what Rocky Marciano would bring to a fight. Put him in the appropriate division. Where would that be for him? Uh, again, we might be talking a bit more cruiserweight-ish. He might do a... He could fight a light heavyweight, because that's like 170, and he was bigger than that. But, like, you could drop Rocky Marciano into the contemporary appropriate weight class, and he'd raise some hell. Because boxing's a little bit different. You're not dealing with innovation, for the most part. And what you are dealing with, like, you could tweak just a bit. And the same is, and that history, that historical perspective, that acknowledgement and celebration of the history of your sport is not really a thing the UFC does. And some of that is the ever-changing... MMA has evolved and tweaks and flow and you know, stuff comes in and out of style in MMA that it doesn't in boxing or kickboxing even, for that matter. Because of the you know, breadth of what's available to you. But... And, it, again, it's not quite true that you could take anyone from MMA history and drop them into contemporary training methodologies and they'd succeed. But you could do a lot worse than, you know, taking a prime version of, you know, a Frank Shamrock, even a Ken Shamrock for that matter. Train them a little bit more with contemporary sensibilities, and how do you think they do? Again, world champion? Yeah, maybe not. Really darn good? Probably. But... The UFC doesn't want to celebrate its history in that respect. It wants you to do the next thing. It wants you to believe Dana White when he goes out and says, so-and-so is the pound-for-pound king. Because that's the guy in the next upcoming fight. And then next week, it'll be somebody else. And believe me, because don't think about the past. Think about the think about the now. And even don't even think too much about the future. Because, you know, things change. And it's just not conducive to... Uh, it's not conducive to a real, like, appreciation for your sport. Yeah, you know, I've said this before. Like, I've seen, like, three or four generations of MMA fans. Like, I'm not first-gen MMA. I don't pretend to be. I know when I came in. But I have seen the tough generation come and go. I saw the generation after that, which is kind of like the Brock Lesnar come and go. I've seen the Ronda Rousey Conor McGregor come and go. And if you've been I've been doing this for a while, so I've been around the sport for a while. I know plenty of people who used to watch fights. Who used to watch MMA on a fairly regular basis and who don't anymore. MMA's hardcore genuine fight fan community is pretty darn small all things considered. And that turnover means the UFC should bear a chunk of the burden of preserving and honoring the history of the sport, which they helped shape and for a long time considered themselves the steward of. Most of this stuff is yours. Most of this stuff, like, you own the rights to most of this stuff. Like, somebody wants to talk about... Um, you know, pride guys, like, you have the footage to that. You own it. 
Somebody can't talk about the history of Mauricio Shogun Hua without using your footage. And I don't just mean UFC footage, I mean footage you own. That needs to be preserved and honored in a way that I don't think, again, I don't think the UFC is capable of. You know, they they just are not good at it. They'll give you a Hall of Fame thing and then pretend that that matters. And that that's kind of the end of it. Like, they're not good at this. And it I think it's a problem for them. So, anyway, my two cents on that. All right, that was UFC 284. Your bonuses, I mentioned already, fight of the night was Mikashev and Volkanovski. Heck yes. The fact that, eh, eh, here's 50K, turned in one of the best fights of all time, technically speaking, but... Uh, Sorry, occasionally the UFC's bonus system just annoys me because it's like, it's so small. Um, performances of the night went to Yair Rodriguez and Jack Della Maddalena. I am not arguing with either of those. Not one iota. Um, little surprised when didn't go to Justin Taffa, but Dana White wasn't present for this event, so... Because Dana loves his big heavyweight knockouts. Um, and that's it. Like, Rodriguez and JDM, like, yeah. So... That, again, that was the event. My full report is in the MMAZona411mania.com if you are so inclined. All right. Let's move on because the UFC will want you to care about this event. UFC on ESPN Plus 77 comes your way this Saturday. We have a change in the main event. The original main event was Aaron Blanchfield against Tyler Santos, which might have crowned the next title challenger to Valentina Shevchenko. I would have favored Blanchfield. I think the way she matches up with Santos causes problems for Santos. And if you'll recall, I was one of the people saying before Santos fought Shevchenko, like, hey, I'm picking Shevchenko, but Tyler Santos is a legitimate fighter. Don't, you know, ignore her at your own peril. And then arguably Santos should have won that fight. I think I scored it for Shevchenko, but easily the closest fight of her entire UFC run. Um, apart from maybe that second fight with Nunez, but this was a lot, like, this one, that one, that, that fight was a lot, you know, the, the one with Santos was a lot more back and forth. Uh, anyway, Santos had to pull out. However, in, on one week's notice, in steps Jessica Andrade. Now, I mentioned, I would have favored Blanchfield over Santos, it's a stylistic thing. Santos is very good. But Blanchfield is very aggressive in ways that Santos has struggled with. Blanchfield's a very good wrestler and a good smothering top control, smothering top game. That's been a problem for Santos. I think Blanchfield would have given her a lot of problems. Wouldn't have been surprised to see Santos succeed, but I would have favored Blanchfield. Not sure I can favor Blanchfield against Jessica Andrade. Andrade is just a hammer, man. She's got incredible stamina. I've seen her fight five rounds. She's maybe the hardest puncher in the flyweight division. In fact, I'd bet money on it, to be to be honest. She's incredibly strong, physically. Uh, she's been adding leg kicks to her game because she's short. She's hard to take down. Not impossible, but hard. She's hard to hold down. And... She, She'll be there for the whole fight. So, if 
if there was a full camp involved for Andrade, I would pick her. I'm given the shorter notice. I'm not like that's a confounding factor here. I might still. I think I am. I'm still gonna lean Andrade. Just a bit. Now, Blanchfield, again, she is very, very good. Her success is in no way accidental. She has run over her last couple of UFC opponents. I mean, she again, she ran over Molly McCann like it was nothing. Her only loss is a split decision to Tracy Cortez. Um, wouldn't be sh- I will not be surprised at all if Blanchfield wins this fight. But going from fighting Santos, who's a bit more rangy, a bit more of an outside fighter, and Blanchfield likes to be all the way out or all the way in. Sorry, uh, Santos. All the way out or all the way in, and her grappling off the bottom is a little iffy. Especially relative to someone whose top game is as refined as Blanchfield. Like, that would have been a big kind of point of of attack for her. Um... But Jessica Andrade is not Aaron Blanchfield, or is not Tyler Santos. Like Andrade will get in your face, but she has a physical strength that Santos doesn't. She has power in her punches that Santos doesn't. I just there's not a lot of people I pick to beat Jessica Andrade. And if anyone is picking Blanchfield, I understand. And like I said, this is this is a very close fight in that respect, but. I I just got to lean towards Andrade just a little bit. Um, the rest of this card is not great. Um, light heavyweight Jordan Wright will fight Zach Pauga. Right, I guess. Heavyweight Josh Parisian and Jamal uh, Pogues. I kind of feel like I should pick Parisian here. But I don't know, man. Like that's crappy heavyweights. Um, light heavyweight William Knight and Marcin Procneo. Assuming Knight makes weight, which is not a given. Uh, he's lost his last two fights. Whereas um, Procneo, what's he done? He is two and four in the UFC. Good grief. Uh, one would imagine that's a loser leaves town match. I don't know. Procneo, I guess, because Knight just gasses horribly. And kicking off the main card at lightweight, Jim Effin Miller. Love Jim Miller. He's fighting Alexander Hernandez. Hernandez stepping in on short notice. Hernandez on a bit of a rough stretch. Um, those have come against Hanato Moicano and Billy Quarantilla, who are both very good. Um... I'm going to I picked Jim Miller at this point as kind of a kind of a sentimental thing cuz I love the guy. He's on a three-fight winning streak. All those are finishes in the second round. Hernandez tends to fall apart in the second round a little bit if he can't get you out of there in the first. So logically this is Hernandez, I think. I mean, believe it or not, I think logically. But I I suspend a bit of logic when it comes to Jim Miller. So, I'm going to pick Miller. Uh, we'll have to see what happens, but, you know, it's Jim Miller. You've been around as long as I have. You you have nothing but fond memories of Jim Miller fights. Uh, as for the prelims, Lena Landsberg against Mar- uh, Maria Buena Silva. Landsberg, I guess. Featherweight Jamal Emers against Kushinash- 
Um, Ashkabov. Probably Ashkabov, actually, would be my hunch. Emmers. Yeah, he's 1-2 and two in the UFC. I mean, lost to Giga Chikadze and Pat Sabatini. Nothing to sneeze at there. But it's kind of my hunch. Uh, light heavyweight, God help us. Ovin St. Prue and Felipe Lynch. There are three light heavyweight fights on this card. What did we do to deserve this? Um, Can I pick Ovin St. Prue at this point? I mean, Linz looked okay in his return to light heavyweight. He beat Marcin Procneo. Uh, Ovin St. Prue is just old at this point. Yeah, he's almost 40. Had that weird split decision win over Shogun that maybe he should have lost. Before that, he's been stopped by both Jamal Hill and Tanner Bozier. I mean, Hill went on to become champion at 205, but that Bozier loss, yeah. That, uh... That doesn't sit well. Let me pick Lens, I guess. I, just, I don't think I can pick Ovin St. Prue at this point. Lightweight, uh, Nazim Sidyakov and Evan Elder. I believe these are two UFC debutantes. Let me confirm that, however. Um, oh, yeah, for the record. Um, picking Ashkabob over Emerson. Ashkabob is 23-0. and 0. That's a touch inflated. Um, he's not fought like the highest level of opposition, but that's still a heck of a thing. And yeah, yeah. Ian Emmers has not been especially impressive in the UFC. Um, let's have a look here. Sadikov. This is how I'm going to pronounce this until I hear otherwise. Seven and one. Coming off a contender series win, seven fight winning streak. Versus Elder, who is also seven and one. Who lost his UFC debut against Preston Parsons last year, about a year ago. Yeah, Sadikov. Um, AJ Fletcher will fight Themba Gorim Grimbo. Gorimbo, and this gentleman is from do not recognize this flag. Oh, Zimbabwe. Should have recognized it. Anyway, Gorimbo is 7-3 and three coming into his UFC debut. Um, Fletcher didn't look too bad, actually, his last time out. He lost to Angelosa, but... Like, that's not an easy first fight in the UFC for Gorimbo. I don't know. Again, that that's a little bit tougher to pick than you might think. I might lean Gor I'm gonna lean Fletcher. Just lean, but I'm not sure. And kicking everything off, we have Juan Carlo ha uh, Ronderos. He is. It's not Colombia. It is Colombia. Why do I think Colombia had a smaller yellow stripe? Anyway, uh, Juan Carlo Ronderos, who is four and one. He lost his UFC debut to David Dvorak. A rough debut, man. He fights Clayton Carpenter, who is undefeated, 6-0, coming into his UFC debut. I uh, want to get the Contender Series to get here. Uh, Lane Carpenter, sure. I, mean, I I don't. It's not a knock on Ronderos, but he got into the UFC maybe too early, just four and like four and zero. Oh. 
it's a bit early. Like, cutting your teeth in the UFC that early in your career is a... That's a rough ask. A rough ask for a lot of guys, so... Uh, that's the card as it currently stands. I will be covering it Saturday in the MMA Zone of 411mania.com, so stop by, say hello, I always appreciate it. All right. We ran a little bit long just talking fights, so let me check for news, and if there's nothing, we will get out of here. All right. No, I don't see any major news coming out of this. Most of the news I talked about, like, last week, so let's just do plugs and get out of here. I talked to you off about technical stuff and stats this week, so my apologies if that's not your jam. Uh, I, I cover mixed martial arts and professional wrestling over at 411mania.com. AEW's Dark Elevation on Monday. MLW, when they get back to a Thursday release schedule, and WWE SmackDown on Friday. Plus occasionally call-ups for other, especially pay-per-view events for wrestling. So if you're interested in my takes on professional wrestling, you can find those in the wrestling zone of 411mania.com. Of course, UFC and ESPN Plus 77 this Saturday. Uh, this... Tuesday again, right? I gotta double check my calendar for Damn You Hollywood, because some of these dates got shifted. No, this Monday. Yeah, I thought so. This Monday, uh, we will be doing Best Picture Contenders over on Damn You Hollywood. That will be myself, Mark Radlich, and Alexis Haina. And we'll be talking again, the Best Picture Contenders, some of the other, you know, stuff from the Oscar nominees that come out as the Oscars kind of get closer. So be on the lookout for that on Monday. The week after will be Ant-Man and the Wasp, so of course pay attention for that. Uh, if you're interested in my thoughts on movies and whatnot, damn you, Hollywood, and to any podcast platform of your choosing, that will get you to where I am over there. So that's what's coming up for me this week. And of course, Saturday or next Sunday, we will be back here to review UFC on ESPN Plus 77. And yeah, we're going to preview UFC on ESPN Plus 78. Oh, boy. What did I... Yeah. Oh, this is rough. Sorry, I'm just looking at this. Your main event is Nikita Krylov and Ryan Spann, which you ought to tell you something. Um, Augusto Sakai and Dante Mays. Tatiana Suarez is back. She's fighting Montana De La Rosa. So hopefully Suarez is healed up and ready to resume active competition because she's very good. Mike, oh man. Andre Muniz and Brendan Allen. That's not bad. Not gr- that, that's a decent fight. Anything else? No. Not really. Ugh. I mean, full preview next week, so come back and listen to me suffer. I mean, the week after, right? Yeah, the week after is UFC 285. And how's that looking? How is that looking? That's a good card. I mean, the top two fights are good. You know, that's John Jones and Cyril Gaon for the heavyweight title. Shevchenko and Alexa Grasso for the women's flyweight. Shavkat Rachmanov and Jeff Neal. Darn good fight. Bo Nichols' UFC debut. We got Drakus Duplessis and Derek Brunson. That's a relevant fight. Uh, okay, that, yeah. 285 has some solid fights up and down the card. So these last, these couple of fight nights are suffering so that that event can be a good one. So. That happens sometimes. Those of us that watch every card suffer from time to time. All right. Thank you all very, very much for listening. That's going to do it for me for this week. Appreciate everything you do on all your listens. means the world to me. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, as always. Stay safe out there. I'll see you next week. Until then, be well, be safe, and behave.